Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I am joined by Amanda Loudon today. Hello, Amanda. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So we're recording this a little bit early. So we're just a few days past um, Christmas and Hanukkah. And so um, you went somewhere for the holiday? You saw some family, right? Well, the intent was to go somewhere, oh. but that, that didn't happen. <laughs> so we were all set. I mean, literally bags packed, oh. getting ready to walk out the door yesterday. We were going to go to Ohio and visit my brother, but my sister-in-law came down with a stomach flu. Mm. Um, so we kind of reassessed whether or not that was the best thing and um, decided, you know, it was just a lot to throw at her, all of us showing up while she's vomiting. So. <laughs> Well, now that you put it that way, yeah, it does not sound like a really good idea. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, um, so we canceled that and, you know, it's funny because you think, oh, now I have all this found time, but Mm -hmm. my day has just been, I, it's just been a blur. So, um, (laughs) I I don't even, I don't know what, what I've filled it. Well, I filled it with a lot of things. So, (laughs) oh my goodness. So, and how did it go? This was your first holiday season as a single mom. How was that? Right. Yeah. No, I think it was, um, I think it was good. I think we're pretty far down the road, almost a year into this whole um, new situation. And I think that made it easier. And um, I had the kids um, from Christmas Eve into Christmas morning. And we did a um, Christmas Eve night, we did what we've always done, which is get together with some um, good friends. It's about four families that we've all raised our kids together here in the neighborhood. Um, we always get together at someone's house on Christmas Eve. So, um, so that was a lot of fun. And then they all, you know, both kids woke up here and we hung out here in the morning. They headed over to the X's for the afternoon uh-huh. and then they were back home with me. So, um, oh. for my end, it all felt pretty good. And I feel like, I feel like it was good for the kids too. I think, I think everyone seems to be managing pretty well. Oh, good, good. And how long is your freshman in college son home for? Until about January 10th or 11th that weekend, he'll go back. So um, all told, close to a month, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very very good, very good. And his first semester, it went well? It did go well. It did. And he's really really loving where he is, which is, you know, it it took, like at the very beginning, you know, he hit that typical freshman roadblock, I think, around four or five weeks in where he was questioning if it was the right place. He hadn't tribe yet you know that those kind of things uh-huh. um but now he just absolutely loves it and i think he's looking forward to going back oh, so good. it's good oh good that's yeah. uh that brings me back to um so i went to colgate university which is also where dimity went yeah. and um so and it was not my top choice in colleges and so um i remember we got a october break so i think we got maybe mm-hmm. two days off of school maybe three so i went home to connecticut it was about a four hour 15 minute drive back home and i remember i was kvetching to my mom about it being boring and uh it was you know said it's very rural place and and my remember my mom said oh sarah you led a very exciting life and i was like thinking really <laughs> like what <laughs> so, so so then probably, i'm like well i grew up outside new york city i'd get to go into the city a lot you know i had i don't know i just started kind of she kind of listed off a couple of things i was like huh now that you put it that way i guess you're right not so bad <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah so well well good i'm glad i'm glad he's liking it we um we went from the Saturday before Christmas until um, Christmas Eve day. We went up to the Olympic Peninsula to a super charming town called Port Townsend, 
where my husband mm. Jack has two cousins and an aunt who live there. And then the cousins both have kids who live there and um, they're kind of close in age to our kids. So we went up there and took my older daughter, Phoebe's boyfriend with us. And ah. yeah, so now how long have they been together and, and um, how did all that go? Yeah, So they've been together since early August. They were friends before that, but they've been dating since early August and um, he'd been to Port Townsend a, a number of times because that's where his dad grew up. He doesn't have family there anymore, but he had been there as recently as last summer. So he'd been there more recently than we had. Um, right. So, um, yeah, he got along really well with everybody and he's um, has a good sense of humor. And, um, yeah, he, it was it all went very well. And so uh, it was very funny, though, because whenever... Um, John, my 14 year old son, when he'd turn around and see them kissing, he'd go, Ooh, they're kissing. <laughs> and he was just, he was just doing it to be a turd, but it, it was very yeah, funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, role of the younger brother. Yeah, yeah. So, oh my gosh, it was so funny because, um, there's a fabulous movie theater there in Port Townsend. It's called the Rose Theater and it is super charming building and they have real popcorn, like fresh cooked popcorn that they put real butter on and you can have oh, all wow. these like, you know, like dried lavender put on top or brewer's yeast or any of these things. And so... Um, so I, I do love their popcorn, but nutritional. Thank you. Yeah. Brewer's yeast, not so good. Yeah. It's funny as I was saying that I thought, huh, I bet that would taste kind of skanky. Um, yeah. Nutritional yeast. Thank you. Alex. Such a Portlander to correct me on the type of yeast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And so, uh, um, so anyway, but so they went, so Jack, my husband and the John Daphne, the twins went to see the new star Wars movie with a bunch of the relatives and, um, I, it might be heresy, but I am not a Star Wars fan. And, same, yeah, okay, same. oh my gosh, yet another way for the same. <laughs> and, um, and Phoebe just is, just doesn't really, has never been exposed to it. But um, the boyfriend, uh, he, he had promised his dad that he'd see it. He's the oldest of, um, he actually has twin brothers. So it's kind of crazy that um, both he and Phoebe are um, uh, older one with siblings who are twins. So anyway, so he had promised his dad that he'd see it. So he was like, no, I can't go see it. But two things he did say to me, um, he said, um, why is it that you raised Phoebe without any exposure to Star Wars? Like, it was like this great <laughs> failing as a parent that I'd done. <laughs> yeah, I do yeah. and, uh, and then, then the other thing, so I was like, okay, then we should do something. And and so we actually went to Redbox and got, we're looking at movies and Downton Abbey, the movie was out. And I was like, mm. oh, I totally want to see that. I totally want to see that. I'm thinking there's no way. And he goes, oh, I watch all of Downton Abbey with my family. Sure, I'd see that. <laughs> Oh, nice. Like, oh, be still my beating heart. And right. <laughs> then unfortunately we didn't, there wasn't a DVD player at the place we were staying. Like they didn't have a TV where we we're staying. Aww. And I couldn't get my husband's laptop because my Mac, you know, hasn't had a DVD player, you know, several iterations of Macs haven't had them. Right. And so we couldn't play it. So when I got home, I told Phoebe, I said, Phoebe, that we're still going to watch Downton Abbey with him. Like he's coming over and watching it. It's on Amazon. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. And then the, one more thing about movies. I'm so excited. Molly and my present to each other was to, uh, and I suggested it was that we go see Little Women together and take as many mm. of our quote unquote children with us as we could 
Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when my kids asked me who I want for Christmas, I said for you all to go see Little Women with me and Molly. Oh, good one. Yes. Good. Yes. So yes. Uh, so we have uh, we already bought tickets to see it on Sunday. It's Friday, so we're recording this, and so um, yeah, I'm just almost literally counting down the minutes. Everything I hear and yes. read about that makes it sound so fantastic. Well, it's funny because um, I went for a run with my friends this morning, and we talked about going to see Little Women oh. tonight. And <laughs> Um, while we were recording, I was getting texts from them because someone was trying to get tickets for all of us. And of course it's sold out. Of course, yeah. 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 You were smart. You were smart to, uh, get your tickets. I mean, I bought mine on, let's see, on Thursday morning for a Sunday matinee. And I was sincerely worried that it might be sold out already. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, well, we'll have to compare notes when we both have seen it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm very excited. Yeah. So, well, I wanted an upbeat, encouraging topic for the first show of the new year. And so our guest is Kelly McGonigal, the author of several books, including the Just Out, The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. So I just thought, perfect, that's the message I want to bring and start the new year off on. So um, Dr. McGonigal is a research psychologist and lecturer at Stanford University, and she also teaches dance, yoga, and group exercise in the Bay Area. We'll have a joyful conversation with her after this brief break. Stay with us. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us and being our first guest of the new year. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. So Kelly, tell us a little bit about um, your professional background. You've got kind of an interesting, I think, an interesting mix of things that you do and kind of walk us through that and how it all, um, you know, intertwines, I guess. Yeah, I guess I have three main professional roles. So I'm trained as a research psychologist, as a scientist studying things like emotions and the mind-body relationship. And I continued to teach part-time at Stanford University, which is where I, I did my psychology training. So there's that academic side. Um, and then I also am a, a public sort of figure trying to promote psychological science and teach people about how findings from psychology and neuroscience can help us be happier and healthier and strengthen communities. So people might have seen my TED Talk or um, read one of my books. And then I also have this third um, aspect that I think most people didn't know about, but is the part of my professional life I'm actually the most passionate about. And that's for 20 years I have taught group exercise, everything from dance and yoga to cardio and strength training. Um, and so, you know, I'm really excited. Like right now, I feel like I've, I've reached that stage in my career where I can bring together all of that, the science and the exercise mm-hmm. and going out there and sharing the science to help other people um, be happier and healthier. Nice. That's so great. Um, so we're assuming you're not a runner. Is that correct? I know. I, am I still allowed to be on the podcast? So I know. So what got you on my radar is, um, so I just wrote this book and it's like half running because part of the reason that I, I wrote this book is I wanted to better understand why people I love, love running hmm. and why runners have the best stories about movement. I mean, I love my dance. I love yoga. I love kickboxing. I love so many forms of movement. But when runners talk about running, there's something so psychologically interesting about it. So one of the reasons I focused so much um, on running when I was doing the research for this book was because I wanted to know why running is so important, first of all, to my identical twin sister. It's a huge part of her life. Um, you know, she runs tons of races every, every major holiday. She, her kids and her husband are at some 5k or a half marathon. 
Um, and my husband is now, he, he came to running um, in midlife. And now he also is super enthusiastic about it. He actually just ran his first ultra marathon last oh. week. Oh, that's um, exciting. Mine, which which is, one? And this is, um, it, uh, <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. A long one. <laughs> it was, it was a trail run out here in Northern California, but I don't, it's not like one of the famous ones where okay. like, you know, that people would know about. I don't, I don't think okay. I'm still so gentle in this world, but you know, it was only in 20, I think 16 when he started running and he set his, his new year's resolution was to run a half marathon. So I've watched him um, start training. And then now I'm like, is it going to like, do you have to go further now? And now he's looking at a 60 K. So I guess there's always somewhere else to go. But anyway, so I'm not a runner, but I love runners and I love the science of running. And I feel about my forms of movement the way I think a lot of runners feel about running. Nice. 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 Yeah. So as I mentioned in the intro and you alluded to, you're the author of several books and it seems to me that they all have a few common themes running through them. So if you agree with that premise, what do you see as some of those themes? I'm thinking, for instance, your approach towards stress. Yeah, so I feel like all of my books, um, I'm really interested in relieving suffering. That's sort of like what I'm here for. And so all of my books, um, basically, I looked at something that people had a complicated relationship with. You know, as a health psychologist, the kind of things people would come to me and say was, was really creating suffering in their lives. My first book was about chronic pain. Um, my next book was about behavior change and willpower for people who were struggling with whether it's something as serious as addiction or um, whether it's just the, the everyday sense that, that you aren't living up to your values or prioritizing your goals. And like that struggle that so many of us have where we feel like there's two versions of ourselves and one version keeps sabotaging the version we want to be. And then my next book, The Upside of Stress, was um, really trying to help people come to terms with the fact that life is stressful and that we have, we have these innate capacities to deal with stress in ways that are healthier and that allow us to experience more joy and meaning and connection in our lives. And just because your life is stressful does not mean that you are doomed to misery or um, you know, all the other things we've been told are the, the inevitable consequence of having a stressful life. So I feel like one of the themes is I go to places where people People have a pain point and I, I want to help people deal with things that are really common and really common to the experience of being human. And the other thing that I think is maybe a less recognized um, theme of my books is this idea that the best way to deal with all of these pain points is self-compassion and connection to other people. So whether it's coming to terms with the fact that, you know, if you're someone who lives with chronic pain that you have to find a way to make friends with your body, even when it feels like your body is betraying you, that, that there's a, a way of opening up to the, the reality of your experience in a way that allows you to both practice self-care and have a sense of courage about you know, dealing with reality as it is. The same thing, self-compassion as a, a, a way to reach any kind of goal or any sort of change you want to make in your life. And again, that, that theme also of that like you're never alone in it. You know, If you're struggling mm -hmm. with with addiction or you're struggling with stress or you're struggling with pain, so often these things make us feel like we're the only ones and we're alone in it. And there's something sort of broken in us as a human being. And I think probably the core theme of all of my work is I want people to know they aren't broken, they aren't alone, and they don't have to face it alone. And so I think the importance of social connection 
is a, another big theme. I don't, I don't know if you've actually read my books, if you're just basing your themes on the titles, in which case, um, I'd be very curious what themes you could get from the, the cover art. Um, <laughs> no. or if you read any of the books. <laughs> I just kind of got a sense, uh, and from your website about the, that not, not viewing stress just as a negative source in our life, you know, that there's yeah, some... it's, it's, and really this is a very pragmatic um, point of view that mm -hmm. I, one of my core beliefs is that even even though I'm dedicated to reducing suffering in the world, one of my core beliefs is that the things we most wish to avoid in life, whether it's pain or stress or loss, that they, they can also bring out the best in us and they can be an opportunity to build communities that really enrich our lives. And so, um, you know, the idea that stress isn't all bad, I'm not saying we should go out and make people suffer. But it's really about the idea that it can bring out the best in you. And many people experience that for the first time through, by the way, physical movement. That exercise teaches us a lot of these lessons about how going out of our comfort zone can, can produce outcomes that we actually really value. You, you can experience yourself as somebody who persists through physical pain or fatigue. Um, you, it can change the way that you, you feel about yourself when you go through something difficult or you pursue a difficult goal. And uh, it's, I think, one of the reasons why why running and exercise are so important psychologically is in many ways, it's, it's a, a training ground for the other challenges in our lives so that we can see how stress can bring out the good in us. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Um, and, and you touched on something I wanted to um, expand on a little bit here, and that's um, the importance of connecting with something bigger than ourselves. Because mm -hmm. For us as runners and and the mother runners, um, you know, we we immediately think about you know taking part in a running race or being part of the another mother runner community. Um, so can you touch on that for us? Well, I think so. First of all, you know, I think that social connection is the the root of all human psychological well being and happiness. Like it is in and of itself a good, a, a, something to pursue, something to organize your life around. And we know that people who feel connected to others, and again, it's about feeling connected to others. You know, it, it can take so many forms. The, the sense of connection that listeners have to you as sort of being part of the podcast family, the virtual communities we have, and that kind of social interaction. And yes, real world interaction and communities. Um, that sense of feeling connected to others, um, you know, people who have that are protected from, from some of the you know, the, the, the kinds of despair, the loneliness that I would think of as being, the, you know, essentially the opposite of human well-being. And so, so I, in my, my research, so part of my scientific work has been looking at how to help people really find that sense of connection when it's missing in their lives. And, you know, we've, we've created interventions at Stanford and, you know, you can do it through meditation and do it through group interactions and it's all sorts of interesting psychological strategies. But in my own life, what I found is that movement is one of the best ways to build community. And we can talk about this, you know, there's so many reasons. The, one of the most surprising to me is that when you get your heart rate up and you are engaged in physical activity that's moderately challenging, it completely changes your biochemistry and your brain chemistry to make it easier to connect with others, to help you trust others, to bond, to, to be more open to enjoying social connection, contact, play, cooperation, even competition, friendly competition, that, that movement actually enhances the neurochemistry that makes all of those things enjoyable. Even if you're someone who deals with something like loneliness or social anxiety, it kind of like, it opens the gateway to enjoying social contact. So 
Awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah. we're we are going to get to some of those questions. One thing that um, I want to get to first is on the homepage of your website, you lead with a quote from, from your book, The Upside of Stress, that really hits home with us mother runners and women perhaps taking care of elderly parents. And it was caring mm. for others triggers the biology of courage and creates hope. So can you please elaborate on the statement? Because I guess it gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. So, so often we've heard that that the human brain and body has one response to stress, fight or flight. And we've been brainwashed into thinking that every time we experience anything in life that's stressful, including you know caregiving or anything else, that our body and brain, um, they enter the state that is fundamentally toxic, that makes us the worst version of ourselves, um, that can you know, paralyze us or make us hostile. And, and that's not true. There's, there are all of these other sort of um, responses that our brain and body have, the stress response repertoire. And one of them, I, I think of it as being a, a social stress response. It's sometimes called tend and befriend, but it, it also is, it's a bigger than self-stress response. That is, sometimes when you are in a stressful situation and you recognize it's bigger than you, and sometimes it's bigger than you because you're not the one who's suffering the most in it. And I think that you know, caregiving can be a, a situation that, that fits that bill. Or it could be that you recognize you're not alone in it because there are so many other people who are struggling with a similar situation and that you shouldn't even try to do it on your own, that you should team up and, and do it together. That when, you're, when some part of you recognizes the stress is bigger than you, it's not just about you, one of the most common stress responses we have actually fuels us with courage and hope biochemically through um, a hormone called oxytocin, which lots of mothers know because mm -hmm. um, oxytocin <laughs> is one of the things that helps Mothers bond with their children, um, but you know it, it helps all people bond with all creatures they love, including animals. One of my favorite studies found that when you gaze into your, your dog's eyes, it releases oxytocin in both of you. Um, but so it's, it's a bonding hormone, and um, it's also a stress hormone. And so when oxytocin levels are higher during stress, because some part of you is recognized, okay, this is a stressful moment, it's a moment that matters, but this is bigger than me. It's not just about me. Um, oxytocin makes it easier to connect with others, but it also dampens down fear in the brain. Oxytocin is literally a molecule of courage. So it helps your, your brain stay focused. It gives you a sense of hope. It activates the reward system of the brain. So it's going to enhance all of those brain chemicals like dopamine and endorphins that make you feel like something good is possible if you take action or if you engage. You know, it's, it's the neurochemistry that makes you willing to hug a loved one even when they're sick. It's like, you know that feeling you get when <laughs> like, you could have like a disgust response, but then you also have a caregiving response. And part of that's oxytocin. That's like, get over yourself. This is a moment <laughs> where somebody needs you. They're in pain. And anyway, so, so we know that this is part of a stress, our stress response repertoire, and it's really good for us psychologically. It's really good for us physically. Oxytocin is an anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. It, it is actually healthy for your heart. Um, and what studies show is that when you're dealing with anything difficult in your life, if you choose to have a, a social response to that by helping someone else out, um, by you know spending time with a friend, just talking, but when you enter that kind of social and particularly helping others mode, you can actually shift whatever's happening in your brain and body to make your stress response healthier. So even if you're stressed out about something that really is a personal challenge, like you need to take care of it, or you're feeling angry about what's going on in the world and there is nothing you can do about it. If you turn your attention to um, a, a caregiving role 
in which you can actually experience some kind of you know moment to moment connection and satisfaction um, that that can really transform how you experience the other stress in your life. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into your new book. Um, for you, what is the joy of movement? Is it the action and movement itself? Is it the post-exercise effect, a combo of the two? You really should call it the joys of movement. Um, actually, so, you know, it's so funny when I was talking with my twin sister about the name of this book, she was like, it's sort of like the third part of a trilogy. So the joy of cooking and the joy of sex and now the joy of movement. And she was <laughs> joking, but I was actually thinking that kind of seriously is what I, I hope to do with this book because you know the joy of cooking and the joy of sex are basically saying food and nourishment is central to who we are as humans and how we experience happiness and meaning and connection. So enjoy cooking and enjoy eating. The joy of sex, same thing. Sex is central to who we are as human beings, how we survive, how we connect, how we experience pleasure and meaning. Um, so go enjoy sex. Well, this I'm saying the same thing is true about movement that movement is central to who we are as human beings and key to how we experience happiness and connection and meaning. And so when I talk about the joy of movement, I'm not only talking about the endorphin rush, I'm talking about all of the joys that are central to being human, that, that movement seems to amplify our ability to feel hope and optimism, to feel connected to others, to experience the joy of mastery, getting better at something, making progress, the joys of cooperation, the joys of connecting with nature. One of my biggest joys of movement is the joy of moving to music and how music, like that in itself is a central human joy that we evolved to be able to connect with music because it allows us to feel more hope, to do hard things and to connect with other people. So there's so many different joys. Every chapter is sort of organized around a different kind of key joy. Even the joy of enduring things that seem unendurable, um, that, that key human joy of, of knowing our own resilience and our ability to do things that are beyond comprehension, like say, run an ultra marathon. <laughs> um, so in reading The Joy Movement, it occurred to me there might be several reasons that running with a best running friend or a small group of people can make us happy and not just for like the obvious reasons of having somebody there to make you laugh or distract you on the uphills or whatever. Could you please um, go over a few of the other reasons that, that being with people and making those connections can make us happy and bring us joy? Yeah. Well, so let's start with the runner's high. Did you know that science about the runner's high? No, I was going to get that. I, have you talked about this on the show? I don't know how many No, it's funny because I, I had a, a question of the endocannabinoid Cannabinoids, system. yeah. Yes, and that I was going to ask that question first. So let's go back to that one then. That I was, okay. I, I didn't know that, I, that was a new term for me. I didn't know what the endocannabinoid system was, how it factors into joy. I'd love if you could detail that and then, then we can move into why why people accentuate that. Yeah, so one of the questions I wanted to dive into is what's behind the runner's high? And I should say, you can experience it in other forms of movement too. I experience it in basically any cardio um, movement as well as flow yoga. But you know, running is really the best, easiest way to find it. And I was curious what the neurochemistry of that was. Why is it that, that people often feel that sense of flow? They feel a sense of being able to take on the world. You know, pain feels less, anxiety feels less. It's kind of euphoria. Um, that is so common and often only after you've been running for a little while. So it turns out that the classic runner's high, the reason people feel better, like maybe 15, 20 minutes into a run, is that moderate cardio activity 
triggers this release of endocannabinoids. And the endocannabinoid system is the system in the brain that cannabis mimics. So the effects of cannabis are not the same as the runner's high because cannabis just really affects the brain in a, um, I'd say a, a more, it's like, it's like, it's not a refined uh, adjustment of the endocannabinoid system. It just sort of hits the whole brain at once. So you end up stoned rather than experiencing a runner's high. But when it happens in a runner's high, you know, endocannabinoids do a couple of things. They, they basically tone down anything that's happening in your brain that you would consider unpleasant. So endocannabinoids really help quiet down um, anxiety, stress, anger, um, and physical pain. So a lot of the inner experiences that we might come to a run with where we're like, oh, I don't want to feel this way. Um, one of the first effects of the runner's height, it actually starts dampening all of that down. So you might feel like your mind is clearer, you feel less stressed, um, your body feels better, all of that. And endocannabinoids also enhance anything that's happening in your brain that we would label as pleasurable. So endocannabinoids actually um, enhance endorphins, enhance dopamine, which is that sort of that feeling of like optimism and yes, I want this. And uh, also um, endocannabinoids enhance oxytocin, that, that bonding neurohormone. Uh, so basically that's why you feel happier and more optimistic because the endocannabinoids are basically anything good going on in your brain, we're going to take it from like a two and a three up to an 11. Um, and that's like the core neurochemistry of the runner's high. So it's not only an endorphin rush, but you're literally putting your brain in a state that is dampening down all the things we often don't want and tuning up all of the, the pleasures that we might be able to experience. And the thing that surprised me the most when I was doing the research on this is that endocannabinoids particularly enhance social pleasures. Um, so they make all pleasures feel better. Like the sunset's going to look more beautiful. If you're listening to a song you love, it's going to sound even better when you're running than when you're not running. Um, the joy that you get from being with your best friend or with your spouse or with your dog. Dogs also get a runner's high, by the way. They actually show an increase in endocannabinoids too, um, <laughs> which is pretty cool. So your dog really will love you more if you run with it. Um, but so that's one of the reasons why running with a, a group or with a friend or with your spouse or with your kid or with your pet can be really good for the relationship because it puts you in to a biological state that enhances it, like their jokes are funnier. Uh, if they give you a hug or a high five, it literally feels more pleasurable. I mean, have you had this experience? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm just so, like nodding so along like, as you talk. Yeah. Like neurochemically. So if you want to improve a relationship with someone, you know, going for a walk or going for a run is a really great way to do that. Um, and some studies have shown also that um, when you move together, it allows people to say things they, they might not say otherwise. Often, um, if, you're, if you're running at a pace or walking at a pace where you can talk, people disclose things more freely. They have, they're better able to take new perspectives on conflict. So that's another reason. And part of it's the neurochemistry. Part of it, I'm sure, is also the effect of being outdoors. You know, you're more likely to be running with someone else outdoors than on a treadmill. And um, there's, we also know there's a lot of effects that being in nature has on our mood and on our mindset. So that's going to be part of it, too. But there's this whole other side besides the runner's high that's about how moving in synchrony with other people is one of the key ways that human beings experience connection and feel like they belong. And so running is one way to do that where you can literally be in sync, like in stride with someone else. But it's also why people love things like going to a group exercise class or going to a dance class where 
you're all, you know, whatever you're on the cycle, the, the bicycle and you're cycling in cadence or you're step clapping together in a dance class, or you're all like pushing hard on the treadmill in a treadmill class. Um, that's one of the reasons we love it because it, we get this immediate sense of belonging and connection. Mm-hmm. You, nice. you, you talking about also the, that it tamps down kind of negative things and turns up the volume on the positive things. It makes me sort of think is oftentimes if I'm kind of wrestling with a, uh, you know, quandary in my life or something that's bothering me, I think, oh, well, I'll go out on a run and then I'll figure out the solution to it and I'll focus on it and everything. And then within minutes of being out there, I'm like, <laughs> oh, what was I supposed to be thinking about? I, I can't remember a single thing that bothered me. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> Which is actually a pretty good mindset to come back to anyways. Probably half of the stuff that we worry about, um, we can let go. And then the other half that's still waiting for us, it's, uh, this is another reason why running or any form of exercise is actually so good for us. There are studies showing that when you experience something stressful after you've exercised, you experience it differently than if you hadn't exercised. So one classic study, they just simply looked at whether or not somebody exercised that day and then asked them about the most stressful thing that happened, like you know, conflict at work or at home, taking care of a, a sick relative, the, the worst, most stressful thing that happened to you today. And then ask questions about it, including the toll that it took on their mood and their emotions. And on days when people had exercised before that stressful event took place, um, it took less of a toll on their mental health and their happiness. And so that's another reason to, to think about why running or our exercise can be so important for our mental health is it kind of changes who you are when you engage with the rest of your day. Um, which is why I think you know, I'm not a morning person, but I try to exercise first thing in the morning because I believe it. And even though I know I will enjoy exercise more at night, mm-hmm. like it's just easier for me circadian rhythms. Mm-hmm. If I don't exercise in the morning, I'll go through the whole rest of my day. It's sort of not the best version of myself. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Listening to, I thought, oh, there's a big argument for being a morning exerciser. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are probably many reasons too. You know, physical health reasons, I'm sure. But the effect on mood is a big one. And for me, the way I experience it, I'm somebody who has a lot of anxiety. That's my core temperament. And um, we know that there are certain types of exercise that not only reduce anxiety while you're doing it, but kind of put you in a, a, a state of courage for the rest of the day, or at least for a few hours. And so that's a big reason why I exercise in the morning. You know, I'm, I like to geek out on some of the, the science of it. The, the movement form I tend to do in the morning is actually core strengthening because of this amazing research that when you activate your deep core muscles, the way you might in functional training or Pilates or some forms of yoga, that um, it actually sends a message to your brain that says, I've got this, like you're in control, you're in charge, and it starts to dampen down the anxiety circuit of the brain, which for me is like the background noise all the time. So I'm like, I'm get up in the morning, I'm drinking my coffee while I'm doing it, and I am trusting <laughs> that these planks that I'm doing are creating a state of courage that I will need for the rest of the day. Nice. Well, you've got, um, the book is full of great anecdotes. Um, and several that stuck out to us involved women coming back from debilitating health issues, such mm. as the woman in Austin who had the brain bleed, um, stroke. In um, thinking about extreme cases like hers, do you have any takeaways for runners who are sidelined with injuries or you know, how can they keep from slipping into feelings of depression or anxiety when they can't do the movement, you know, that they, that they love? Yeah. I mean, so there's, 
so many, <laughs> this is making me think about so many different things. You're right. There are a lot of amazing stories in here, including, you know, people who become paralyzed and have to face that as a new reality, people recovering from major health challenges. One of my favorite running stories um, was Susan Hurd, who used running as a way to deal with the death of her child. So it's both physical and also other major life challenges and losses. And running can be a way to, um, you know, Susan said to get back to embracing life, even if it doesn't look like what you think it should look like physically. I think one of the common themes in all of those stories is that people were unable to, to maybe do things that they used to be able to do because their bodies had changed or because when you're experiencing depression or grief, you know, like your brain does not really want to encourage you to move. That's part of, that's part of how grief and depression and trauma work is it, your brain will literally tell you to go crawl into a hole. And so sometimes it's harder to get that initial um, runner's high. And if you're someone who's used to it, it can be like, I can't believe this, that like even this thing that I've relied on to feel good doesn't feel like it's working. And so a couple of the things that have really stood out to me in all of these stories and also a time in my life dealing with grief where I found it very hard to exercise and also necessary, but it didn't look like it usually looks like in my life, um, is that first of all, you have to trust the process and to understand that, that you know, the human brain and body have a tremendous capacity to heal or to adapt. And, and movement and running or whatever it is that you're able to do kind of kickstarts the brain and the body's capacity for adaptation and transformation. So as long as you're willing to do something and something that is hard for you now, but you know, it might not have been hard for you two years ago, but this is sort of where you're at, that you can trust that that process in and of itself is teaching your brain how to recover and heal, is teaching your body how to recover and heal and not to get caught up on whether it's, it's happening at the speed or the form that you think it should. One of the stories that didn't make the book was a, a gentleman who is recovering from multiple forms of cancer. And he talked about how initially he would just go down to his basement gym and sit there while his sons worked out. That was his first step. And then he remembered the first day, I think he said it took, it he was running like running, he was like crawling something like a 30 minute mile and he was able to do a mile and it was a miracle. And that was the beginning for him of being able to come back from the cancer. So, so that's what the first thought is. Abandon ideas of what it should look like and trust the process and judge it by it's okay if it's hard and it's okay if it's what you can do. And the other is to not do it alone. Um, all of these stories that are in the book, and this is not something I went looking for. This, these, this is what people told me. So important to have a group or to have a coach or to have a trainer or to have a community that is cheering you on and sometimes showing you the way and sometimes holding the hope when you can't. You know, I, I talked to a CrossFit coach who also is a reverend and she talked about how important it is sometimes to have a community where if you're having a really off day, you still get to witness somebody else maybe having a personal best and it all sort of balances out that you can be training in an environment where you see ups and downs and you have your own ups and downs and you're sort of held by a community that is struggling and improving together. So those are the two main things that, that come to my mind. Uh, don't do it alone and also trust the process. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. 
So let's go back to something that you alluded to before about um, being outdoors and that sort of thing. And I had never encountered the term that you use in your book, which is green exercise. Yeah. But but I know and love what that is. Um, I just had never seen that term applied to it. So talk about the changes that happen in our body and mind when we interact with nature in an active manner. Yeah. And let's, let's say, by the way, green exercise includes any um, activity that's done outdoors in a natural environment. So it could be a beach, it could be the woods, it could be the desert if you can tolerate the heat. <laughs> um, any place outdoors that you like, my favorite form of green exercise would be probably in a city where I'm on a waterfront. I mm. like skyscrapers with my nature. You know, that's my green exercise. <laughs> a little bit of blue, a little bit of sparkle. Um, but so, so what research shows is that it is not like the runner's high where it takes like 20 minutes to kick in. Within minutes of being physically active in a natural environment, most people report really dramatic improvements in mood and outlook and, uh, and really funny psychological side effects like the slowing down of time. One study found that they were, if they asked people to estimate how much time had gone by while they were walking outdoors versus walking indoors, it's like time literally slows down and they, they, um, they overestimate how much time has elapsed because for them time has slowed down. Um, so there are interesting side effects like that, but people tend to basically feel more optimistic, um, connected to something bigger than themselves. They, they have a sense of perspective on their lives. Perspective is a word you hear a lot and hope is a word that you hear a lot. Um, and researchers are just beginning to try to figure out what this is about. So we know that it's, it happens. It's pretty universal as long as you're in an outdoor environment where you feel safe. Um, and so, you know, research is trying to figure out what exactly is happening. And I think the most interesting research is looking at how being active outdoors shuts down the default state of the brain. And if you think of like the, the default state of the brain is sort of like, um, how your computer might have a screensaver it goes to whenever you're not focused on a task and, and it just goes to the same picture or the same words or whatever. So your brain has its own kind of like screensaver default mode where when you're not hyper-focused on something in deep conversation or immersed in reading a book or whatever, that your brain is like, oh, I guess we have time to go back to and then whatever your default state is. And for many people, it's worrying or criticizing ourselves and other people or planning for the future. For many people, the default state has like an edge to it. It's not like the, your happiest daydreams. And um, what seems to happen is when people are outdoors in nature, and particularly when people are physically active in nature, the movement enhances this effect, the default state quiets down, and you are left with a state of mind that is more about what you're sensing in the moment. It's like a natural form of mindfulness meditation. You feel connected to the present moment. A lot of that inner chatter, the worries, the, the thinking ahead, that quiets down. And there's a sense of being connected to life, connected to your environment, connected to your body. Um, and that it's very hard to find other things that do that to the brain. Meditation is one of the only, it actually is the only other thing that has been shown to reliably do it. Some drugs <laughs> seem to do it, but sometimes with unpredictable effects. So like LSD <laughs> and ayahuasca will also reorganize your default state, but in profound enough ways that you can have um, some very unusual experiences. So nature does it in a way that's closest to meditation. Mm, I, I totally relate to all that because I, I always say if, and, I, and this is not, I know lots of people are very happy on treadmills, but for me, I don't even know that I could be a runner if I was, 
running on a treadmill solely as opposed to getting outside. You would need just... a really good playlist. That's my hypothesis. I feel yeah, like if you're yeah. not in nature, you had better have a killer playlist. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that important to me. So, yeah. um, but let's, let's do some takeaway advice for runners and, and want to be runners who might be struggling with consistency. How can the pursuit of joy or the diminishment of anxiety, social isolation, how can that be um, something to, to help get them out out the door and, and, and to be consistent in their fitness yeah. endeavors. Well, one thing I know is that a lot of runners are motivated by numbers and they do a lot of tracking. And um, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you're actually training for something and you need to, to understand your progress. But I would encourage people to try tracking a before and after sort of snapshot of their mood. So how much energy do you have and what's your state of mind if you had to describe it in a word? And most people will reliably feel more energized. I mean, especially if they're training at an appropriate you know, pace, they'll feel like they actually have more energy afterwards rather than being exhausted, which is what most, especially new exercisers predict. When you ask people who are taking up a new form of exercise to predict how they'll feel afterward, the most common response is people think they're going to be exhausted and miserable, which is crazy because that's the opposite of reality. There's, I call that the joy gap. You can't trust your brain when you haven't done it yet. That's the state of mind that you're going to fix by going for the run. So um, don't trust your, your brain saying, oh, you're too tired or, oh, you won't enjoy it. Forget that. And actually like track how you feel afterward, even if it's a single word. And if you're using some kind of app or you're using some sort of journal to, to track your training, please make that a part of the process because that's one of the ways that we learn. And it's one of the ways that people get hooked on, on running or other forms of movement is they start to really understand that afterward, even if parts of it were hard and parts of it were uncomfortable and maybe the weather wasn't perfect, but afterward they feel optimistic, they feel empowered, they feel strong, they feel calm, whatever it is. Um, and so that is part of how we learn to love it. Um, the other thing I would say is again, to find a way to make it social unless movement absolutely for you is the only time. If you're so socially connected that what you really need is time alone, and there are some people for whom that is true and it's your time to be alone and outdoors. But I think just because we know that the nature of running is to enhance social connection, it seems a shame to waste that. So if you want to find a community, like let's say you don't have a lot of friends outside of work or family, Running is such a great way to form those relationships, to start to look for a community that you'd like to be a part of. Or think about a way to, um, if there are people you want to strengthen a relationship with who would be interested in doing this with you. And maybe it's more important to do it together than to find the training partner who's going to you know, be exactly the same place as you physically. That it's okay to undertrain or to push yourself you know, for some runs um, because sometimes the place and the person are more important than the sort of the ideal workout for your body. Um, so those would be my, my two main ones. And then also, especially for new people, I write in the book about this, this bizarre timing effect that it seems to take something like six weeks for the brain to fall in love with running. Um, and that has been shown in animal research, like, you know, mice and rodents are, and rats have a natural ability to learn to love running, but they don't always all love it, at, you know, when you first give them the running wheel. And it takes about six weeks for, for rats and mice for their brains to change in such a way that they become addicted to running and will go on running binges. Like they just love the running wheel. Um, and, and by the way, see all the benefits from it. They also become happier and less depressed and all of that, less, less traumatized by living in a cage. Um, so human brains also show a similar time course. 
if you have never run before and you're not really an active person, um, it seems to take about six weeks for your brain to fall in love with being an exerciser. So what can you do to get through those six weeks? And this might be true if you're coming back after a long time off as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, can you commit to something? Can you plan for an event that seems like it's within your reach, say in eight weeks or you know a few months to, tr to give you something to look forward to and to know, especially if you're beginning, that your brain is gonna be different if you commit to this. And even if you don't think that you love movement or exercise, whatever you do consistently for six weeks, there's a very good chance you're going to fall in love with it. I love that. Very cool. I love yeah. that. I love that. Well, Kelly, I feel we just pretty much scratched the surface of your book. And I, we didn't get to talk about dancing. <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone happens to be listening and you also love dancing, then definitely pick up the book because it's, it's only about half running, half strength training and dancing too, and yeah. yoga. Yeah. It's all yeah. good. Yeah, no, it is all good. It is all good. I highly recommend it. I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I, we both, I know, enjoyed talking with you. So thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. Yeah, and good luck with all of your New Year's goals. Thank you. Amanda, that woman, she speaks the truth. Oh my gosh, she's, she's great. She really is. I mean, I, I was nodding my head along with everything she was saying. I was like, yes, and yes, and yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So, all right, well, we no longer have Dimity chiming in with uh, Train Like a Mother Club moments because starting on January 7th, Dimity will be hosting a bi-weekly show called AMR Trains. It's going to air every other Tuesday. It'll alternate with AMR Answers. And Dimity will talk to coaches, other runners, and motivators to bring insight and inspiration to the world of training and running. And like AMR Answers, AMR Trains will magically start appearing in the Another Mother Runner podcast feed. So to make sure you catch every episode, please subscribe to this show and apply the settings so that every episode will automatically download. We appreciate your support and we hope you enjoy the new show. Again, it's debuting on January 7th. Our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy or rather joyful miles. Mm -hmm.